college. All right, let's go ahead and begin our class this evening on this first day of spring fake. I call it spring fake because it's supposed to be back in the 40s this weekend, from what I understand. Yeah, <laughs> so <laughs> that's right. So we, we are, I mean, I think, did it hit 70 today? Yeah, it, I, I know that it came close. And I'm grateful for that. So today what we want to do is we want to work through chapter, the end of chapter 2 and, uh, and get through all of chapter 2 and then get into um, a section uh, that, in fact, did we not get the next section? Somebody asked me about this and maybe... 3, 1 to 7. Did, uh, did somebody not... I don't think some people got that. Uh, does somebody know where they're normally put? Because they're probably still back there. In the resource room. Is there any way you could grab those for us? I'd appreciate that. Thank you very much. All right. No, I know. I've still got a little bit to do here. <laughs> we did. We did. <laughs> All right. Let's go ahead and uh, be, begin with a word of prayer. And we've got to work through a little bit of this one, a little bit, some of this one, and then we'll get into 3, 1 to 7 as well today. So let's begin with a word of prayer and we'll do that. Father, we are thankful tonight for the blessing of good weather, for the blessing of enjoying the life you've given to us. I thank you for these saints who sit before me. They've been called out by the name of your son. They've been changed by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And uh, now they desire to live faithfully. And I ask, as I am, have been asked to teach, uh, that I would do so in a way that connects with where they are in life so that they might grow in, in holiness and in love for you and that I might as well as I teach it. In Jesus' name, amen. So the last time we were together, we talked about, and if you don't mind just passing those out, who, who needs a copy? If you just raise your hand and, and he'll get you a copy. Uh, thank you very much. So these are 3, 1 to 7 here. <laughs> so as he hands those out, I can summarize. I'll, I'll go ahead and actually take one as well. Thank you. Uh, I could summarize what we started with last time. We were talking about slaves, and the reason we have to talk about slaves is because the passage does. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 18. 
Peter says, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. And I think it's important for us to understand that ancient Roman slavery was of a different caste altogether than the type of slavery that we saw here in the United States. It's an, it's an important point to keep in mind because if we have in mind the American form of slavery and we read the biblical narrative with that in mind, we've read it wrong. Uh, because in the ancient world, as in 99% of civilizations that have lived on the face of this earth, there was a form of slavery. And many times this was an economic uh, situation. It wasn't related to the color of your skin. Uh, it, it wasn't related to anything in that way. It was related to the fact that uh, perhaps you became a prisoner of war and, and that, that sometimes was the case. But a lot of times it was actually economic and people would sell themselves into slavery. Um, and then there were times where a family would get into a financial situation. They would sell someone within their family into slavery. And uh, so it was, it's a difficult thing. I think if you read the fullness of Scripture, what you'll find is that the Scripture plants all of the seeds necessary for the destruction of slavery. But it does it in a different way than, than we might expect. You see, I think what we expect to happen is for Jesus, Peter, Paul to come on the scene and say, this is an unjust system, and so we're going to destroy this system. But if we think that that's what Christianity is going to do, I think we've misunderstood what Christianity came to do. Christianity did not come to transform culture. It does do that. But that's not its purpose. Christianity came to save a people from their sins. Now, that people saved from their sins, guess what happens? They change. And if enough people within that culture have changed, then the culture changes. And I think we're seeing that here in the United States of America, but in the opposite direction, <laughs> right? I think we're seeing a culture that has been heavily influenced in the past by Christian values, being no longer influenced by Christian values because the majority of people in our nation are, are not Christian. They don't want to maintain that belief system in any way. They're, they reject it wholeheartedly. So then the nature of culture changes. So then what do we as Christians do? Do we become uh, a group known as the people who fight against, the people who fight against, and, and name all the cultural things that we're trying to transform? The answer is no. Now, it very well may be that everyone knows that if you are a Christian, you are going to stand against something that the culture at large has. And, and that's fair. That's fine. And in fact, that means that ultimately uh, the world at large is going to say, well, Christians are against this and against that. But the point is this. We don't, we don't as a church or as local churches, our purpose is not to change society. It's to change people. And will that have an influence on society? Yes, but down the road. Um, and not on the immediate end. Now, of course, there are lots of questions about exactly what do we do as Christian citizens in a country at, uh, that isn't Christian. 
And I think you can vote according to your Christian convictions, all of that. Uh, but you know, of course, in the ancient world, uh, Paul didn't have a vote. Peter didn't have a vote. There, there wasn't a voting system. So they were under the Roman government. They were under a social system in which there was slavery. And to say, well, they should have stood up and said, slavery, it's got to end right now. How would that have, how would that have uh, fared for A, them, their ministry, as well as, um, you know, honestly, uh, the whole economic system, it took some time to shift, to change. It, yeah, that can't change overnight. And so I think that the way that slavery eventually unwound itself actually gives great credence to the biblical gospel. Because again, we mentioned this last time, if you look at why the slave trade ended, it was actually Christian convictions. There were enough people who stood up and said, this is wrong. What, what we are doing uh, against people, uh, stealing people, enslaving them in this way, uh, and all because of the color of their skin, uh, this is wrong. And, uh, and I think that's... that's completely fair. So coming back then to, to Peter, uh, when he says, all right, so what do you do as a, <clears throat> as a believer who's a slave? What do you do? How do you, how do you survive? Well, you know, I think some people want to say, well, what Peter should have said was, you stand up to that slave owner and everybody needs to stand up to their slave owner. But you know, he doesn't say that. He says this, Here, here's what you should do. Submit yourselves for the Lord. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. So why is it that you submit yourself to your masters? And the answer is in reverent fear of God. So I am doing this for the sake of God. For the sake of God. And of course... <clears throat> We recognize that God is sovereign over our life situation, don't we? He's the one who's allowed me to be in the situation I am in, and I think this is a part of that. <clears throat> uh, I want to move as, uh, as quickly as I can here. I note that it's not only to the good and the kind, he notes here. So who should you... Obey slaves, not only to the good and kind, and those are the ones we immediately think, okay, well, that, that would be easy, but he goes on, but also to those who are harsh. Also to those who don't treat you right. Now, why would we want to do this? Well, he notes here, um, by the way, let, let me just make a comment on the word harsh there. The word harsh is a translation of the word scolios. You've probably heard of scoliosis, right? The bending, the, the bending of the, the spine in the wrong way. These are people who are morally bent the wrong way. And so they cause harm. They're harsh rather than being right. So Peter gives two reasons why they should be Submissive even to unjust masters. First, you can see this in verses 19 to 21. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. Please note that. 
He says, it is commendable. The word commendable here means it is worthy to be praised. It is worthy to be honored. It is worthy to be rewarded. If someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. So one finds himself in a situation in which he does not wish to be in. Nevertheless, this is the situation he's in. And Peter here says, Endure, suffer unjustness, and in doing so, you will be rewarded. But notice, <clears throat> but how is it to your credit? If you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it. In other words, he's saying, okay, uh, you could receive a beating for doing wrong and you endure it. Should you get a reward for that? No. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. So he, he provides two options, two avenues that might happen in the life of a person. They do wrong and they get punished for it. They do right and they get punished for it. And he says, no, we might say, well, wait a second, that's not right. That's not fair. And Peter would be the first to say, that's right. That's not fair. But here's the thing about God. He is the one who makes the unfair fair. He's the one who rights wrongs. And in this scenario, as, as one is doing these things, conscious of God, seeking to honor God with their life, he says, this is commendable or this is to be rewarded before God, God in God's eyes. This is commendable. So to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So <clears throat> verse 21 is an, an interesting phrase there. Uh, he says, to this you were called. And the question is, to what? It could point back uh, to suffer for doing good and enduring it. So to suffer for doing good and enduring it, that's what you were called to. And why? Well, because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his footsteps. So since Christ suffered in this way, uh, you likewise will suffer in this way. It could be pointing forward to this you were called. What? That you should follow in his footsteps. That is, it points forward to what you are to do. And, uh, you know, people debate uh, which direction that this uh, should go. But I, I tend to think it goes back. We are called to suffering. Now, what does Paul say about this? Yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And Jesus warns those who would follow him that they're going to have to do what? take up their cross. Uh, we kind of have flowery thoughts about the cross. Here we are coming up on Good Friday and then into Easter. And uh, you see these depictions of the cross all honoring the cross. In the ancient world, uh, the cross was not an honorable thing. It was the very symbol of dishonor. It was the thing that was the the implement of dishonor and shame by the Romans. It was the greatest way they had to dishonor somebody. 
You know how people were crucified? Naked. You know where they put them? If you recall, it's called the, uh, the place of the skull. If you've ever been to, to Jerusalem, you know that this is on the, on the top of a hill. It's, it's a, I mean, I wouldn't call it a mountain, but it's a visible place. Jesus would have to carry his cross through the middle of the street. And of course, he was in such uh, pitiful shape that he wasn't able to do it the whole way. And so somebody else had to carry the cross for him. But the point of that was, here's the middle of the street. Have this shameful person carry this cross. And as Jesus is up on the cross, who's on both sides of him? Two criminals, but not just criminals. These are traitors. They're people that have defied Rome. They're, um, they're people who, um, you know, I mean, it, one of the worst words you can use in reference to somebody is a traitor against their own people. And so Jesus is considered one of those. He's called himself the king of the Jews. He puts that right up on the, on the statement. Oh, here's the king of the Jews. The whole thing is designed to shame him. And Jesus says, Look, listen, if you're going to follow me, then you too will be shamed. There's going to come dishonor in reference to the world. This is how they're going to view you. And boy, Joel Osteen has apparently never heard any of this. Um, You know, and, and, oh boy. I I preached at a church once and afterwards. uh, I'm standing at the back of the church service. And uh, somebody comes up and says, oh, I just love that. You remind me so much of Joel Osteen. Oh. <laughs> uh, I think she meant something good by that. <laughs> I didn't take it in a very good manner. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah. I, oh, man. But in any case... Um, You know, so here, the point is, to this you were called. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. Uh, The point being that there are times where God calls us to suffering as well. And that may be the shame of holding the name of Christ high when the whole culture at large says that that's an embarrassment. Uh, You believe what about Christ? homosexuality, about gender, about whatever the, the new, new fad is, right? You believe what? Oh, you, uh, you're behind the times. Uh, you'll change soon enough. And, uh, you know, I mean, you, you hear all these sorts of things. Uh, but Jesus suffered, and why should we expect any different? He left us an example that we might follow in his footsteps. And I think the re- it's, it's a result clause. Christ suffered with the result that we have an example. So that when we suffer, we can say, all right, I'm not the first one to, to walk through these, these channels. And we can look at Jesus who ran the race perfectly. And we can follow him in his race. All right, so then, you know, it's, it's not surprising then that uh, that Peter then turns to a consideration of Jesus himself in verses 22 to 25. So he says, Jesus also suffered 
He left you an example. And let's think about Jesus for a minute. Because you suffering and Jesus suffering are two different things. Because if I suffer, there's a degree to which I deserve it. Even if it's unjust, right? I mean, there's, I've been unjust, and to some degree, I probably deserve some of it. Is that the case with Jesus? Notice how it begins here in verse 22. He committed no sin. So how many sins did Jesus commit? Well, here's one of the clearest expressions in all of Scripture of the sinlessness of Jesus. And by the way, let me, let me mention, I think it is important for us that to, to recognize that the longest exposition of Jesus in 1 Peter, in talking about who he was and what he was like, the longest exposition is actually a reference you know, within the instructions to slaves. And I think partly this is because in many ways all of us are slaves of Christ. Uh, but he committed no sin. Second, no deceit was found in his mouth. So I think the, uh, the comparison here is this. He did nothing by his deeds that was evil. He did nothing in his words that was evil. Now, James is going to later say, who can control their tongue? And if they can control their tongue, they are a perfect man. Right, they are a liar because they can't. But the person who can is the perfect man, and Jesus was the perfect man. And he could, in fact, control his tongue. Third, it tells us, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. Uh, so as Jesus is getting insults thrown at him, the immediate response of the sinful flesh is what? Oh yeah, relax out. Let them know what what's on my mind. Um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna teach them a lesson, and uh, you know, of course, a lot of times I don't know all the information. I mean, Jesus had enough information to really, to really burn some people, didn't he? <laughs> Literally, and uh, <clears throat> my girls use that figure of speech all the time. Ooh, she burns you, or something. So, I, I'm just trying to be hip here, okay? And. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> I, I think I revealed all when I said hip, didn't I? <laughs> so, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. And the interesting thing, you know, so, so I think this is a responding in, in, in like kind, because those who submit suffering to you, you might respond to say, you know, suffering's coming your way. And Jesus had a very good means of actually doing this. He had a very legitimate way of saying, you know, you're doing this to me today, but you know what's coming for you, right? I mean, he could have responded in that way. But what does he do instead? And, and this goes back to what Jesus does. I mean, if, if you look at how the scripture portrays Jesus as a a lamb before its shearers is silent. He refused to enter into any of these things. Instead, notice what he did. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. 
He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So here is one in the midst of unjustness all around. He is mistreated. Does not deserve anything that's happening to him. But his eyes are on the judge of all mankind. And he knows that everything will be made right. Because he has a perspective that is beyond this life. And I think sometimes this is where we as Christians fall short. We have to get our chops in now. We've got to get that response in. We've got to, uh, you know, we, we've got to make sure we get back today because, you well, know, we don't know if there's a tomorrow. But the thing is, we do know there's a tomorrow, don't we? And we know that there's a day after that. <laughs> a day after that, there's an eternity to come. And that eternity is with a God who makes all things right. And I know it's hard to hear because when I say, when Peter says, look, slaves who are under unjust masters, who have all power over them, submit to them. I mean, that's like the level of unjustness you can't imagine, right? I mean, we, we kind of feel like maybe you're at work and you're like, this boss, I can't believe what he's doing to me. But of course, at any time, you could just walk out, right? You could just say, I'm out of here. I mean, of course, you might not have a paycheck, and so you, you kind of feel like you're there. But, but you probably could go do something else. You, you have some opportunity to do something else. But for these slaves, they didn't. They, they were stuck in an unjust situation. And Peter says, submit. Honor the one who's unjust. And you say, how could this be? I think the only way you can do something like that, the only way you can endure under such a life is if you believe there's another life. Right? Because, like, you know, a slave doesn't have much hope for change. It's not like, you know, tomorrow might be a new day and, and everything's going to be different. No, tomorrow you're going to wake up and you're still going to be under that unjust servant or unjust uh, yeah, master. And the next day, and the next day, and you probably don't have very much opportunity. I mean, there's, there's no change that's going to happen. So the hope that Peter is seeking to inspire in these people cannot be for this life. It's a hope that goes beyond this life. And this is... We're going to get there when we get into the end of chapter 3, but this was Jesus too. Uh, remember uh, Hebrews chapter 12? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the Father. He looked past the cross to the glories that the Father had promised. And so we too in the midst of whatever unjust suffering we experience, can say, the Lord will make it all right. And it will be right in the end. And so here we have people in differing situations. None of you are slaves, I, I don't think. <laughs> None of you are slaves, but I bet all of you have been in social situations in which you've been under some, some situation in which there has been unjust there's been an unjust relationship. 
And you've sought to honor God even in the midst of that relationship. And I think God's promise to people is this, that to the degree that we've done that, for the sake of God, He will make all things right. So, He Himself bore our sins, He goes on to say, verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. So this is one of the clearest declarations of the vicarious atonement of Jesus. He bore our sin in His body on the cross. So, did Jesus take my sin? Peter's answer here is absolutely yes. He took your sin in His body on the cross. And if you ask the question, why would he do such an enormously huge thing? So that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. And I think this is an important point for us to keep in mind. We owe to Christ everything. We owe him everything. Because... He has paid a penalty we never could. Uh, we, would, we would feel deeply indebted to somebody if we were in the 2008 financial crisis and we had a, a, a house that we could not afford. We've lost our job. Everything's just bad. You owe $400,000 in your house and somebody comes along and writes a check and hands it to you. How would you feel about that? I'd give my hand out. <laughs> and you'd be running so that they couldn't catch you to make sure that you could cash that guy, right? <laughs> yeah. But would you feel to some degree some level of, uh, you know, yeah, obligation, that's a good word obligation to this person that to whatever degree you could be of benefit to them, you're going to want to. Absolutely. And as we think about that, the debt of our sin is far more significant than your house payment. And, and, and the rewards that we receive because of the payment for that sin, what we escape, but also what we receive, I mean, so here's why he did it, so that we would be changed, so that you would be different, so that we would die to sin and live for righteousness. And I think the point here is not so much that we would simply have the obligation, but I think it's also that we would have the opportunity. Because one, there, there's two things that actually happen. When he takes my sin... He takes the penalty for that sin, but I think as well, part of the point is he begins to change me so that I can actually do righteousness, so that the tree of my life can actually start producing good fruit. And so we can, in fact, do righteousness and escape sin. So then he quotes Isaiah 53, by his wounds you have been healed. You remember Isaiah 53, the, the whole passage about the lamb from Isaiah. This is that passage. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going 
astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So he makes this analogy with us that we're sheep. And by the way, that's not, that's not a great analogy of us. <laughs> uh, sheep are not the most intelligent creatures you've ever seen. Uh, they need a shepherd. They need someone to come alongside and guide. And uh, thankfully, Psalm 23 indicates to us that we have a great shepherd. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to 3, 1 to 7 then. Unless there's any questions, comments, snide remarks in reference to... Uh... <laughs> well, thank you. Uh... All right, so 3, 1 to 7, let's leave some of the controversial matters and just jump here into the relationship of husbands and wives. That's not controversial these days, right? <laughs> I, I heard all the men say, right. <laughs> no. um, so 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7, it begins this way, wives. And, and here's, here's the really critical statement because uh, there are some people who misinterpret this and we need to read it uh, rightly. Wives, in the same way, Submit to your own husbands. In the same way as what? Well, here's the, here's the challenge, because that's immediately what we think, because we just read about slaves, and then he says, wives in the same way, and it's like, wait a second, okay. Is he saying that wives are slaves? But I want you to notice something. Go down to verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate. So I don't actually think he's saying, in, this, in the same way, um, as slaves or relate to their uh, master, so wives should relate to their husbands and husbands should relate to their wives. That clearly isn't what he's saying. I think what he's saying is this, going back all the way to, to 11 and 12, he's saying that we need in our relationships to honor one another. And so he says, what does that look like with the slave-master relationship? What does that look like in the husband-wife relationship, both from the wife to the husband and from the husband to the wife. And in both situations, there are commands to be given to both wives and husbands. So we'll begin with the wives because that's where Peter begins. Which, by the way, I think it's an important thing to keep in mind that if we were reading any Greek resource from this time, you would not find a section dedicated to wives. You know what you'd find? You'd find a section dedicated to husbands about what they should tell their wives. Okay? So it's unique within the scriptural uh, testimony here that the wives are addressed directly. And I think this indicates the value and uh, the intellectual capacity of women. Now, why do I say that? It's because in the Greek times, there was a, there was a view that women didn't have intellectual capacity. But the scripture clearly does not uphold such a view. So notice uh, the command here given to the wives. So likewise, or wives in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. 
All right, so let's pause there. Let's just take a look at these first two verses. The first thing he says is, submit to your own husbands. Now that word submit is a loaded, loaded term. And I really don't like the term because uh, in our current cultural context, the word submit is not positive in any way. I'm convinced, though, that in many in, in, in the ancient cultural context, the word submit did not have the negative connotation that we hear when we, when we hear it. So the way that I like to translate this when I translate it in English <clears throat> is something like this. Wives, follow the lead of your husbands. Because I think that's what it's saying. Follow the lead of. And I think that that responds to us in a better way and reflects exactly what Peter is saying here. Some have attempted to negate the power of this command by relativizing it. So some have said this, like that this, like the command of slavery, was not intended to be ongoing ordinance, but rather was something limited to the cultural time of the period. And I might find that persuasive, if not for the fact that Paul grounds in the book of Timothy, uh, for, in the book of Titus, in Ephesians 5, in Colossians 3, but particularly in Titus 2, he grounds the relationship between the husband and the wife, not in sin, not in culture. Where does he ground it? In creation. How God designed the creation to operate. And so since he goes back to creation, and since he's made no change to creation, then I would argue that this is not a, uh, a command that is... Uh, something that, that changes over time. Others have suggested that this passage is limited to wives of unbelievers because he goes on to say, uh, submit to your own husbands so that if any of them don't believe the word. So this is just with unbelieving husbands, uh, but within Christian marriages, this need not take place. Uh, the problem here is that there are a couple of other passages in the New Testament in which uh, Paul in particular is talking about uh, husbands and wives, and the context there is clearly not in relationship to unbelieving husbands. It's between believing husbands and wives. Now, I think it's important for us to see that uh, the, the purpose or the function of, uh, of the relationship here. Why is it that the wife should follow the lead of the husband? Is it because women are inferior to men? Yeah, yeah, we're complementary. Yeah, and, and this is, I mean, just, just think of why God created woman, just as God created man. He says man is incomplete, right? There are things that he can't do. There are things that he's not good at. And there are things that a woman is, right? And so we complement one another. I, I, I certainly see that in my own life in relationship to my marriage. Um, my, my wife really completes me. I mean, I, you know, I, I say that in all honesty. Notice also verse 7, because it's talking about husbands in the same way, be, cons, uh, be considered as you live with your wives, treat them with respect as the weaker partner. We'll talk about that when we get there. I think it's in, in reference to their social position. So we'll talk about that in just a moment. 
but, and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Paul, when he gets to the book of Galatians, says that in Christ there is no male or female. And so a lot of people jump from Paul's statement in Galatians to saying, well, then there can't be any kind of a, uh, a structure in marriage uh, within Christian marriage because there's no male or female in Christ. And I agree that there's no male or female in Christ. That is, in reference to our relationship with the Lord, are, are you Gentile? Are you Jew? That doesn't matter. Are you male? Are you female? That doesn't matter. Are you, and then insert anything you want. That doesn't matter. We are all equal before, before God. Because Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God created who in his image? Male and female he created in his image. That's exactly what it says. So woman is the image of God. Man is the image of God. There's equality. Does equality demand equality of function? If so, then I wonder why the son submitted to the father. Because the scripture does talk about the son submitting to the father. He did precisely what the father asked of him. The plan was written out by the father and the son came along and agreed to that plan and followed the plan of the father. He followed the lead of the father. Is Jesus inferior to the father? Clearly not. <laughs> no, he's not. So then we have equality of person with distinction of function. And this is how scripture teaches the distinction between male and female. And, you know, I mean, you know, it's, a, it's always an interesting thing to ask the question, could God have flipped it? Could a man have been submissive to woman and... I mean, I don't know. I don't know those sorts of questions. Who knows the ifs? Uh, this is how God designed it. And so we follow what he has asked. <clears throat> so Schreiner notes, and you can see this on the top of the next page, those who argue that a different function implies inequality betray a secular worldview that identifies worth with stature and the exercise of authority. And I really do think that this has become a problem in our world. We, we live in a culture that doesn't like authority structures at all, anywhere. Any authority structure is inherently unjust, our society thinks. But that's just not true. That's not true. It can be unjust, but the power that a police officer has over me is not inherently unjust. It's actually meant to be for my good. And the structure as a whole is designed to help society operate and function rightly. And in the same way, I think within the home, God has designed it so that the home functions in a harmonious fashion. I'll just speak about my own household. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> I don't think I've ever made a decision and said, Hannah, this is what we're doing. Submit. <laughs> I've never used that word in my marriage. All right? That's because you're intelligent. <laughs> That's because you're intelligent. Uh, nor, would I, nor would I want to. And, and you know, I, 
I mean, you'd have to ask Hannah. But, but I know that she knows things that I don't know. She has an emotional IQ that's through the roof, and mine is through the floor. <laughs> right? My ability to understand the emotions and other things of other people, I, I, God just didn't give me that gift. All right? But my wife is really in tune with those sorts of things. So if, if I choose to lead my family in my home without coming alongside of her and saying, hey, here's what I'm thinking, what do you think? Then I'm stupid. I really mean that. I'm foolish because I am the left hand saying we're just going this way when the right hand could have guided and corrected and helped us to go in the right way. So um, at the end of the day, though, there's got to be a chooser, right? Uh, there in, in any organization, in any kind of thing. There, there's got to be some way of saying, okay, at the end of the day, the left hand says we're going this, we should go this way. Uh, the right hand says we should go this way. And I know I'm confusing everybody right now, but I guess if you're sitting there, that actually makes more sense. Uh, <clears throat> and somebody needs to come along and say, okay, well, I've taken into account all of the factors, but I think this is the direction we need to go. And, you know, I think to the degree that... Um, I think the, to the degree, and we'll see this when we get to verse 7, but to, do, to the degree that a man functions as the man is supposed to function within the marriage, following the lead of that man should not be a big challenge. Because that man should love and, and have great concern for his wife. I think the challenges come when there is a lack of love. There's a lack of trust. There's a lack of relationships so that one person runs the other person over. And that is not how it was designed to be. That's sin, right? And that's abuse of authority. So, you know, so, so I think these, I think the commands in Scripture uh, in relation to husbands and wives are challenging to us because we're sinners. And if we weren't sinners, I don't think they'd be very challenging to us. But we are sinners. And so people abuse uh, their, their power and their authority. All right, so that's, that's walking through a little bit of the, the cultural worldview, I think, that we see today. Uh, by the way, one thing to keep in mind, too, is that Peter clarifies here, women be in submission to your own husbands. Notice what it does not say. Women be in submission to men. doesn't say that, <laughs> right? It's in a specific relationship. When you have partnered together with a husband, now there's a relationship in which there ought to be that that. Uh, sort of following. But outside of that, there's, there's no need for a woman to generally submit to a man. Nothing in Scripture about that at all. Unless, of course, you're talking about a pastoral position, but then you're talking about a different social kind of a thing, and it's a different sort of following the lead of, right? All right. 
So then he gets into a specific illustration that might be useful. He says, so that even if some do not obey the word. Now he's talking about some, some uh, husbands. And I think Peter's getting after a very potentially problematic situation. If we were to understand in the ancient Greek world, the power of a husband over a wife in Greek, in Greece, it was ultimate. It was completely ultimate. It, whatever the husband wanted, uh, the wife just had to, had to follow and submit. I mean, there just wasn't any question about it. So what happens if you're a, a believing woman married to an unbelieving man? Is that going to be easy? Probably not. Because even when you're married to a believing man, he's still a sinner, and there's probably going to be some, some issues that you've got to deal with in marriage. Everybody has those sorts of things. But especially if you're dealing with an unbelieving man, you are now in a situation where there's right potential for abuse of, of that, that relational uh, position. And, you know, so I think that there's a similarity here then with the relationship of the slave to the master in, the, in that some of these ladies were in relationships that basically mimicked that scenario. Though I do not believe in any way that that's God's vision for what marriage should be like. Because here are some who are married to men who do not believe the word. Now, <clears throat> Peter envisions then this husband who does not believe. And I, I note some of the difficulties here. Uh, note down in under the difficulty with Plutarch. Plutarch is a Greek historian and philosopher. He argued this. A wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. The gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships and to shut the door to superstitious cults and strange superstitions. Okay, so here's a Greek guy saying that a wife should not embrace the gods of anything other than her own Husbands, gods. But here's Peter talking to women who are in this very situation. They've embraced Christ, though their husbands have not. So what happens to them? Well, by commanding obedience to the husband, Peter was incipiently expecting situations where the lordship of Christ is questioned. Nevertheless, he was also affirming that the spiritual state of the husband is not a primary factor in relation to the social structure in marriage. Now, one of the important things that he follows this up with, he says, here's one of the reasons you should submit to your, to your husbands, even if they're unbelievers. So that even if they are unbelievers, notice the next line, without a word, they might be one. Without a word, they might be one. I think this is the clearest reference in all of Scripture to the idea that our lives are a testimony in themselves. Now, we have to be careful here because Peter is not saying don't ever use words. How would, how would the unbeliever ever come to know the Christian gospel? I mean, you can't look at somebody's life uh, who's a Christian, you know, your neighbor who looks out their window and sees you 
They're, they don't know the gospel, <laughs> right? Even if they look at you and they say, boy, look at the way that person spends time with their family. They love, love. They see all kinds of things. But they still don't know the gospel. My assumption here is that Peter is assuming that the wife has already shared the gospel with her husband. So what he's essentially saying is, there comes a point when you share the gospel with your husband, the husband has not responded. So what do you do? Just keep nagging him with the gospel? Just keep talking about it? And, I, and his point is, no. No, you don't, actually. Instead, you live righteously before him. Now, why I think it's important for us to recognize that just living out the gospel isn't sufficient is because there are some people who say, you know, all we need to do is live in, live in front of our unbelieving friends and that's enough. Well, I don't think it is. They need to know the gospel because that's the saving power of God. So they have to hear that. But we have to back it up with a lifestyle as well. And I think of it this way. <clears throat> you know, uh, sometimes people say this, this phrase, preach the gospel. Use words if necessary. Have you ever heard that? That sounds really catchy. But I kind of think of it this way. Feed the poor. Use food if necessary. <laughs> because you can't feed the poor without food, and you can't preach the gospel without words. So the words have to come at some point. And I think the point here is that the women have already heard the word. And what they, or I mean, I'm sorry, these husbands have already heard the word. What they need now is it evidence that this word is effective in the life of someone else. Yeah, go ahead. Um, well, what is the wife supposed to do if she's supposed to be uh, recognizing her husband's God as her own God? Oh, I don't think, I don't think Christian wives did that. So this is, so this was Plutarch. So he's a Greek writer. And he says, this is what a wife should do in a Greek culture. And Peter here is writing to ladies, and he's telling them not to do that. No, you, you, can't, you can't honor those gods. You need to honor your God, and you need to live a faithful life in front of your husband, despite what he says, despite what he does. Submit to the degree that you're able. So follow his lead to the degree that you're able. Because uh, there are some things she, she can't follow her, her husband on, because... Her ultimate Lord is, is Jesus. I mean, you know, if, if I made a decision in our family that we were going to do something that was against Scripture, I would expect my wife to not follow me in that. She shouldn't follow me in that because, um, because I, you know, because at that point, uh, she needs to follow her Lord more than me because he has greater authority in her life than I do. And that's right, you know. <clears throat> So, yeah, that, that good, good question. So, without a word, they may be one. The word, uh, the word one there is actually a word often used in financial situations, uh, that, that you win something over uh, financially. But, but the point here is that their soul may be one to Christ by seeing the evidence of their, their wives' lives. In fact, that's the exact next phrase. He says, through the conduct of their wives. They're one by what means? Through what their wife does. Through what their wife does. Conduct, I think, is not limited to one, any one act in particular. Instead, it's the whole life of the wife. He sees his wife and he says, she's different. And how many testimonies of salvation, I, I know I've heard them, how many testimonies of salvation come from somebody who says, 
my spouse became a believer. And they became different. And I said, boy, you've changed. So I need to look into this. And that's a testimony I, I know I've heard before. So, what kind of a conduct would they have? Well, you'll notice it says, when they observe your pure and reverent conduct. So, pure is a, is a term that refers to their morality. They're free from sin. Uh, what they do is sincere. It's blameless. You look at their lives and you say, they act righteously. Reverent is actually the Greek word fear. It could be in reference to God. So the wife's conduct is pure and for the sake of God. It could be towards the husband. The wife's conduct was pure and with respect towards her husband. I'm not sure which one he's referencing here because he doesn't tell us where this reverence is going towards, towards God or towards her husband. And I'm not sure it's really all that important because I think there should be a reverence in both ways. So your adorning, he then says, must not be external. So now he's specifying, he, he's getting into the detail about the ways in which a wife can win her husband and show righteousness, pure and reverent conduct. How can they do that? Well, he says, your adorning must not be external. You'll see this, uh, let me see, verse 2, or verse 3. Your beauty, he says in the ESV here, should not come from outward adornment. So now he's saying, all right, ladies, here's how you should be beautiful and here's how you should not seek to be beautiful. Now, some people uh, pinpoint this and say, well, you know, why is Peter going after the ladies here? And I think probably because uh, ladies tend... Let me get behind here. Uh, <laughs> ladies have a tendency to focus on beautification. Is that a problem? No, actually it isn't. Men don't tend to focus on that to the same degree. Though, let me mention, I lived in a men's dorm. And I saw some guys who spent way more time than my wife does looking in the mirror in the morning. Okay, so, so, so here's my point. There are times where Scripture focuses on instructions to men. There are some times where they focus on instructions to women. And sometimes I think the opposite side, the men can close their ears because this is to women, and men can close their ears because this, or yeah, the opposite way, um, women can close their ears because this is instructions to men. But each of us are different, and I think that there are some men who need to hear this. And sometimes when Scripture speaks to men, there are some women who need to hear the instructions that are supplied there. So our beauty, whether men or women, but in particular Peter is talking to those who might struggle with this more than others, he says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as, and then he gives some illustrations, such as elaborate hairstyles. If, if I had this image, there, there's this picture I'm seeing of this Roman woman with this hairstyle. It must have taken like 10 hours to get your hair looking like this. And, uh, you know, so... so no, not, not necessarily the snakes, but, but these elaborate hairstyles, he says. 
But he goes on, not just elaborate hairstyles, the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. So here's the question I want to ask you. Is braided hair, gold jewelry, or fancy clothes, is Peter saying, don't, don't wear any of those things. Find the homeliest dress you can. You know, just get out of the shower and towel dry your hair and just let it fall the way it, it, it should fall. <laughs> I'm not saying that's a problem, all right? <laughs> um, what, what, is, what is Peter saying? I think one of the ways in which we know what he's saying here is, notice in the, the last line he says, in, in fact, in the Greek it says this, uh, don't beautify yourselves through uh, braided hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, or clothes. Well, clearly he wants them to wear clothes. That would be distracting and problematic. So he's talking then about the way in which people go about this. Um, so, and I think, I think before we make the judgment that, hey, we should make sure, we, we shouldn't have elaborate hairstyles, we shouldn't wear gold jewelry, um, we shouldn't, uh, you know, wear fancy clothes. We need to see the comparison that he's making because that's the important thing. He's saying, don't focus on this side of things because this is where a lot of people focus. I'm going to make the, the outside of my life beautiful, right? But instead, he says, here's what you need to focus on. Here's what you should beautify. He goes on, rather, verse 4, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is, which is great worth in God's sight. Yeah. Not necessarily. I mean, it could be. I think a lot of them would probably try and do those sorts of things to externally beautify themselves. But I think Peter's point isn't never braid your hair. I don't think his point is never wear gold jewelry. I think his point is this, that don't spend your whole life caring just about this side of life. But instead, focus your energies on something more important. That is the cultivation of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is, Peter says, in the sight of God, very precious. So the other things might be in the sight of man very precious. Oh, look at that hair. Look at, look at those clothes. Look, look at all that. He says, but care what God thinks. And by the way, here's what he's essentially saying. When you work on the inner beauty, which is hidden, right, in the sense that it's not immediately evident, your husband will see it. It might be hidden in the sense that it's, it's internal, but it's going to influence, it's going to reflect in your life. And God may very well use that transformation of your character for the transformation of his. And this is important because here are these ladies who are in unjust relationships likely. How are they going to get out of them? He doesn't say, well, go divorce that guy. Get out of there as fast as you can. He doesn't say that. And in fact, I think he'd say very much like the last one. Some of you are in unjust situations. And God will reward you for that. But here's your best out. Beautify yourself. Not externally. Not with all these external things. But change yourself internally. And to the degree that you do that is the degree to which the glory of Christ shines through you. 
and you very well may win your husband. And, uh, and man, would that be glorious. All right, so we've got to end there uh, before uh, pastor comes in and mocks me again for going long. And uh, <laughs> so, so we'll end, and then uh, next time we come together, yeah, that's right. Next time we come together, I'll come with my elaborate hairstyle, my fancy clothes, and my gold jewelry, and we'll continue on. <laughs> you don't think so? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs>